Amen. Good morning. <laughs> it's good to be back. Good morning. Do you, I wonder, do any of you have a red letter Bible? Um, if you haven't, then, then consider getting one. Um, th- this is mine. This is a, a, a red letter Bible. And uh, these are the words spoken by Jesus himself. And this is where we're going to be for the next six to eight weeks. Hearing what Jesus is like, what God is like. All of it in red letters, in Jesus' own words. Um, So do prepare to be challenged um, this morning, because every word we're considering this morning and over the next six or eight weeks is printed in red, and it comes straight from the words of Jesus. Now, you'll forgive me. I've just been prayed for. We've just prayed. I'm going to pray before I start. Heavenly Father, it it is more than 15 years since I spoke from your word to the saints in this little chapel. And uh, Lord, you know I've got much to say. And you know that 15 years is a long time to listen and watch in an ever-changing world. But Father God, as much as we have been buffeted by the winds of change, you never change. Your word never changes. You are righteousness. You are justice. You are love. And you are consistent throughout history. History itself is your story, Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. Eden to Eden. So, Lord, let anything that I have to say, let none of you fall away. And may everything that you wish to speak into the hearts of your gathered family this morning find fertile soil. And I ask that in Jesus' precious, precious name. Amen. Okay. Eden to Eden. This is the story that's revealed to us in in this book. That's history from beginning to end. This is our manual. This is our guide, these lively oracles of God. The most valuable thing that the world affords is this. Simon reminded us last week of where our hope lies in the Eden to Eden plan of God. And as we wrapped up last week, our studies in Ezekiel in chapter 47 We were there with the river of life flowing from the dwelling place of God in the new Eden. Eden restored a new heaven on earth. And and this morning we're going to pick up again. We're going to pick up again in the plan of God. And we're looking at where we fit into it. And we're going to see that we're to be salt and light in this lost world. Jesus begins his discipleship teaching here. And he reveals to his disciples how they are to operate in establishing and building his new kingdom. And likewise, he reveals to us, um, once we know Christ, how we're to live in a manner that affects those around us in an entirely new way. So that just as we've been saved one by one, as we've heard and responded to the gospel, others will see by the way we live that God is good and they'll come to meet with Jesus one soul at a time. And that's how Jesus is building the kingdom of today, the kingdom of God today. He's taking one soul at a time from a dying world and he's rebirthing each one as a new son or daughter into the everlasting life. You'll recall the great parable, the parable of the great banquet. It's like, it's as if we've accepted the invitation from Jesus and we've got our own entrance ticket to the party but Jesus then says to us he says listen it's not just any old party it's my wedding I want everyone to come 
I know it's going to please my father if everyone comes. Here are another thousand invitations. Will you make sure that everyone gets one? I'll be in touch with everyone who responds, but will you hand them out for me? Will you go and tell them the good news about my party? Let's start, let's get back to the text. Let's start, let's start, start in verse 1. Two simple sentences that establish four things about the Sermon on the Mount. The person, the place, the people, and the purpose. God doesn't waste any words. One verse, two sentences, four points. The person is Jesus. And what do we know about Jesus in the early stage of his ministry when we meet him here? Well, I suggest we're going to follow the red letter trail. Has the Messiah really arrived? The very first quoted words of Jesus are found in Luke chapter 2, verse 49, when he was just 12 years old. It was after the Passover, after his coming of age, when in Hebrew culture he was no longer considered a child. The women and children had travelled down um, separately to, to, to Jerusalem, and as a child Jesus would have travelled there with his mother. On the way back, he would have been considered an adult, and he'd have travelled with the men. And thereafter, as an adult, he would have been responsible for looking after himself. He'd have joined his father at his work and learnt his trade as a carpenter. But when Joseph and Mary travelled back for a day, they realised that Jesus wasn't with them. He wasn't with, he wasn't with either of them. And it took three days to find him. When they found him, he was in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. They said, where have you been? Why were you searching for me? He said, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Those are the red letter words, the first red letter words. He's about his father's business. That's where I had to be. So 18 years later, we pick it up in Matthew, and he came from Galilee, Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John with water from, for, for repentance. And John protested, but he said, it is proper for us to do this, to fulfil all righteousness. Red letter words. He's fulfilling all righteousness. He's been touched by the Spirit of God, and God the Father has publicly announced, this is my son, whom I love. He's been announced by God. And he's been into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and to tell him, away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He's announced himself to the ruler of this world, away from me. I'm here on behalf of the rightful king to reclaim what is his. And he's begun to preach. He's begun to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The insurrection has begun. He's begun to call people out of the world. Repent. Turn your back on the ruler of this world. And finally, he's called together his disciples. Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He's announced the coming of the kingdom of the heaven, that it's near. In fact, he knows it's just three short years away, and he knows that the victory over death will cost his life. It'll re-establish God's relationship with man, and in so doing, it will re-establish his kingdom. But it won't complete it. So he's called a small group of disciples who will become the church, which will partner with him to complete the kingdom. 
When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountainside. The place is on a mountainside. There's an inescapable parallel here to Moses on Mount Sinai, delivering the law to the Israelites. What follows on the fulfilment of the law makes it abundantly clear as it leads into the most radical restatement of the law of Moses, and it's in much, much stricter terms than Moses ever realised it. This then, this place, it's one of God's pulpits. And he now someone greater than Moses is here. Someone who Moses himself predicted would come in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet-like man from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. The people, then, to whom it's addressed, was it the disciples or was it the multitude? When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. It began with the disciples. It was primarily for the disciples. But Jesus clearly didn't mind others hearing his teaching on discipleship because Matthew tells us it finished with a multitude. Verse seven, uh, sorry, chapter 7, verse 28, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were amazed at his teaching as he taught as someone who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. The purpose then was to teach. God doesn't waste any words. What was about to be said was important. And it was signalled simply by Jesus sitting down. When a rabbi sits down, it's a signal that he's about to speak from the word of God. The disciples knew this. Everyone that was present there would have known that. Jesus sat down. His disciples came to him. And he began to teach from the scriptures. But in a new and in an entirely fresh way. You shall listen to him, Moses had said. And they listened. And they were amazed because he taught with authority. You have heard that it was said, says Jesus, but I tell you, I tell you this. The Messiah has indeed arrived. Now you see why the Sermon on the Mount is widely acknowledged as the greatest sermon ever preached. But throughout history, the Sermon on the Mount has often been misunderstood within the church and certainly by non-Christians. Many have thought that it teaches and that it sets impossibly high standards against which we're expected to work for our salvation. And it's been a stumbling block to many, the likes of Tolstoy, Gandhi. They loved the teaching, but they didn't see it, the reality. And it, it was a stumbling block to them, and that's, that's, that's a terrible tragedy. Um, This teaching is not about what you or I need to do to earn our salvation. It's about not only working out our salvation, but being part of working out God's plan for salvation for the world. It's about working out what God has already worked in. We need a saviour. And when when we find salvation in Jesus, then, then we have a purpose and a promise. And this is what the calling to be salt and light is all about. The purpose is to join him and his ragtag gang of disciples, reaching and finding every lost sheep in his flock, so that he can reclaim them, so that he can reclaim them to the glory of God, for the kingdom of God. Make no mistake, Christianity is concerned about behaviour as well as belief, with how you go on as well as how you start. And we all begin as sinners. Million miles, a thousand deeds, and a multitude of sinful thoughts away. 
from holiness. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount makes it abundantly clear just how far fall, how far short we fall from the standards of holiness. But Jesus, but Jesus, but Jesus meets us in the here and now. Jesus invites us to the wedding feast now, where we are, and he says, I will make you fit for the kingdom. There's a preacher I much, I much admire who shall remain, shall remain nameless, but he puts it like this. Jesus said to him, he said it to me, and he says it to each of us. Let's start from here. Let's start from here. Let's start from here because let's face it, you're a bit of a mess. But I see your heart and I can work with that. And he begins with character before he deals with conduct. The Christian life then is first about what you are before it becomes anything about what you do. It's precisely the opposite notion to that which is held by most non-believers and is taught by virtually every other religion. That you have to do something to qualify. That you have to do something in order to be. You don't. You have to be something in order to do. And what's more, it's personal. It's one-to-one with Jesus. Christianity is all about a personal relationship with God the Father through Christ the Son. And that's how the kingdom is built, one by one. They reckon, so we're told, that there are around 8 billion individual souls on this planet today. The Bible tells us that each one is unique and especially loved by God because each one of us is created in his image and each one of us reflects a particular part of him. And you know in your heart that this is true because in the whole of creation there's only one you. There's only one soul that you know intimately because you are that one unique soul. And it's the one, it's the only soul whose fate is placed in your hands. You are one totally unique person in eight billion. If there's a God who created you Uniquely in his image, you are in that sense, that very real sense, totally alone with him. And it's with him that you need to make your peace. That's why we Christians don't talk about religion, we talk about a personal relationship in and through Jesus. We exist uniquely, we mess up uniquely, and consequently we have to be given, forgiven individually. When Jesus was nailed to that cross, it wasn't for some general state of sin that he was pinned there. It was for your sins. And it was for my sins. And every one of them had to be paid. They had to be paid for in order that Jesus could now claim you back as belonging to God and fit for his kingdom. That's what he does. When he does that... He also puts the love of God into us. And we also uniquely have that choice and the will to love and to care for others. Even more so when we have his love in us. We have that God-given capacity for love. And the kingdom, as we've heard, is not yet complete. And that, in a sense, that is why we're to be labourers in his vineyard. The whole of creation and everything that's in it Everything that that presently sustains life, it's ripe, it's pregnant. 
with 8 billion little brothers and sisters of Jesus. And it's waiting on each of them being born again into God's eternal kingdom. The resurrected Jesus is the firstborn. Each of us here, we now, we're his brothers and sisters. We're part of the new life generation. But the kingdom is still being put together. And Jesus is asking us to live in a way that's different. And he's asking us to call out to the rest of them from the world. Call them out from the world and into the kingdom to hand out his invitations to the wedding banquet. Wouldn't it be wonderful? We, would, we did a... She's not here. I'm sure she'll listen to it. I probably shouldn't do this. But we've just been doing Hope Explored. And we had the lovely Jess and Richie here. And I tell you, Jess asks the most fantastic questions. And uh, um, midway through our first evening, she just looked at Joe and I. She said, I don't want to be rude, but can I ask a question? Why are you doing this? Why are you being so nice to us? What is it about you Christians? Listen. It's beyond your wildest imagination what God has prepared for us. Would you like to come and meet Jesus? It's that simple to make the invitation. The whole of creation is groaning and God in his infinite patience is waiting. Allowing time for everyone to hear the good news and to accept or reject the invitation to the kingdom. At which point, in the Eden to Eden plan, he'll make all things new. So Jesus begins his teaching with the Beatitudes. Remember, we're right at the start of this unfolding revelation of the person of the Messiah. Um, And it begins with what Billy Graham famously described as the beautiful attitudes. And it's first and foremost about Jesus revealing to us what we are in him. What we do will be the fruit of what we are. Conduct comes from character. The Beatitudes teach that it's much more important to be a Christian than to do the things that Christians are supposed to do. We will do them. Jesus is telling the disciples and all of us who would be disciples, listen, this is how you're going to be part of my plan. One follows from the other, uh, on from the other as night follows day, but it's very important that we understand that the things we do are the fruit of what we are in Christ. Do you see what I'm saying? We don't change the world by ourselves. We don't. Isaiah 64 verse 6 tells us, All of us have become like one who's unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind our sins sweep us away. We've got to be right with God first. And then, we do it. We do it because he wills it. And we fall in line with his perfect will, with his plan, the one follows on from the other. So, in the Beatitudes, we're told what's pleasing to God. We find the heart of God and the mind of Christ. We find in, the, in these beautiful attitudes a state of being what is blessed, simply for what it is, pleasing to God. When we read them carefully, and I'm not going to do it because otherwise we will be here till 1.30, uh, when we read them carefully, we find that They are the exact opposites of the attitudes of the world in which we live. We find a soft-hearted people 
with what might be termed a longing or a mindset that's divinely shared. It's something that Jesus can work with. And someone to whom he can say, and he's pleased to say, you, you will be called a child of God. Or about whom he can say, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. I wonder, do you remember your first encounters with Jesus? Do you remember when you first fell in love with him? You might be on that journey right now. Just beginning to fall in love with him. Everything about God's being is revealed in the person of Jesus. And we find that he's the answer to our yearnings, to our hunger, to our thirst for righteousness, to our paucity of spirit, to our mourning, to our desire for mercy and forgiveness and for honesty and truth in this world and for our longing for peace and justice. And when we recognise it in the person of Jesus Christ and him crucified and gloriously resurrected, suddenly there, there, there's an answer. A reason, a purpose, and a new hope. The world really isn't meant to be like this. It was never designed, it was never created to be like this. I think it's helpful, quickly, that we understand what we mean by blessed. In the Bible, a blessing's a favour or a gift bestowed by God that brings happiness. In the Greek... Makarios, it simply means happy or fortunate. So it basically means to be in a happy place or in a fortunate position to have all the conditions around you that are necessary for happiness. How fortunate and how blessed are those who share the heart of God and the desires of Christ. The kingdom of heaven is prepared for these, my children. Do you know what it is? It's where Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden before the fall. It's exactly where they were. God says he blessed them. He gave them everything to be content and for happiness. And in these Beatitudes, we see the reflected image of God. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. It's exactly what he's doing. Recreating us. In his likeness, in his image, fit for a new Eden. Um, so as believers, one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom, how are we expected to go on? Well, Jesus gives us these vivid pictures of salt and light to describe the influence of Christians on the world. So we'll dig a little bit deeper. Remember, it's, it's addressed primarily to his, his immediate audience, to the, to, to the disciples. Um, but in both cases, when he talks about salt and light, he says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. And in both cases, he's not saying that's by doing or saying anything, but first and foremost, it's by being something. And it's so important to understand. I think I've laboured it enough. <laughs> salt and light are, I mean, salt and light are being freely and quite fashionably referred to by Christians in our present time because of the growing emphasis on social action. But neither salt nor light are concerned with social action. They're concerned simply, simply with being something first. Salt affects its environment by being what it is, and light affects its environment simply by being what it is. 
Now, if the context of these statements about us being salt of the earth and light of the world is the Sermon on the Mount, then the context for that is the Gospel of Matthew. And since every statement in the Bible takes its meaning from the context of the book in which it's written, we should start by considering the Gospel according to Matthew. The four Gospels in the Bible, did you know? Two were written for sinners, two were written for the saved. And it's really important when we open up the gospel that we know which one of the two it is. Mark and Luke were written for unbelievers. And Matthew and John, and we're in Matthew, were written for Christians. So they're written to remind those who are already saved, the Christians, of the things that they need to know to live out the Christian life. To live life in all of its fullness. To be fruitful. To be a kingdom builder. So everything Matthew is geared to believers. And Jesus is starting to unfold here how it is that God's going to use us believers to bring about the kingdom of heaven. Um, Both the statements, salt of the earth and light of the world, come immediately after the Beatitudes. Only one of them relates to the Beatitudes. Light of the world relates to what follows. Light of the world is, is, is the introduction to the new commandments that follow. And we're going to be hearing all about that in, in, in weeks to come. Um, so if you want to know how to be salt of the earth, you read the Beatitudes. But if you want to know how to be the light of the world, you read what follows. And the rest of the sermon, the rest of the sermon that we're going into, it's about morality. And, uh, and as we'll find out, when Jesus reinterprets the moral law, it sets a very, very high standard of morality and a very high standard of living. The world looks at it and it's an impossibly high standard to be achieved by any natural means. And they're right. It is. But now we're in Christ. And we're born again in the spirit. And we're into the supernatural realm of God where nothing, absolutely nothing, is impossible. Right. Matthew's gospel simply says that you're the salt of the earth. And that allows us to put all our interpretations of what... Salt is. Mostly, to most of us, it's something we put on our food, fish and chips, it's, it's culinary. Um, but Jesus actually explains what the salt is in, in the terms of, 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 of ancient Israel in Luke. In Luke, he says, in more red letter words, salt is good. But if the salt loses its saltiness, it's no good either for the soil or the manure. And it's thrown out. Soil or the manure pile. And this tells you what salt was used for in the ancient world. It was scraped up from around the shores of the Dead Sea, which you may well know is about 28% salts in solution. And if you've been there or you've seen pictures of it, you can literally lie back and float on it and read a book. It's that dense. And as the salt dries out, sorry, the sun dries out, (laughs) sun dries the sea, the salt's left around the edges of the lake. And, And it's scraped up and it's sold. And it's not sold as table salt, though there's probably some of that in the mixture. It's a mixture of various salts. And one of the main ones is potassium chloride. Can anyone tell me what potassium chloride is? Are there any gardeners in the house? Potash. Potash. Mrs. Glue, who helpfully interrupted there, will tell you that every plant needs three kinds of fertilizer. It needs phosphates to develop the roots. It needs um, nitrates to develop the leaves, and it needs potash to develop the fruits, the flowers and the fruits. 
Do you start to see the simplicity of this little illustration? A balanced fertiliser is going to include all three, and so the salt that was scraped up from around the Dead Sea was widely used as a fertiliser, and largely because of the potash in it. And then he mentions the dunghill. The word here is not animal manure, but human manure. We're in the poo now. They didn't have flushing toilets in those days. It would have been common to simply have a heap of dirt away from the house, perhaps at the bottom of the yard, and then by the side of the dung heap, there's a salt box full of salt from the Dead Sea. And you put a handful of that on your own contribution to the pile when you're finished, and the salt that was put on that is, in fact, a disinfectant. It's a very simple disinfectant. And it stops the spread of things that you don't want to grow. So you've got this positive and negative influence of salt. It promotes the growth of good things that you want to grow. And it inhibits the spread of bad things that you don't want to get out of control. Isn't that a vivid picture? Isn't that? Christians, we're to be the salt of the soil, the salt of the earth. Even our word soil, it means both, doesn't it? Sewage and the earth. Jesus was always using familiar pictures from ordinary life and using them to illustrate absolutely profound truths. You're the salt of the soil. And those disciples who were being taught and the Jewish people who were within hearing distance, they'd have got that picture really very clearly. Now, having given you that picture... For the purpose of the salt, there's three profound implications of that. Whether I'll get to the end of all of them, I don't know. Firstly, we know there needs to be enough salt. It requires a certain amount of salt. In the kitchen, the sprinkling on the soup will change the, and bring out the flavours. And it's a simple fact in this country and in most of the Western world today that we have not got enough salt. It's as simple as that. That doesn't stop the kingdom growing. What it does, though, is it changes the social trends. And the social trends begin to reverse. And they change for the worse. That's why all of our social trends are going the wrong way today. Now, how much do we need? Now, here, it's much better news. We, do need, we don't need 90%. We don't need 70%. We don't need 50%. We need just 5%. And that's... Encouraging. It's amazing, really. When in a community, there's 5% salt, the social trends over a period of time start to reverse and change for the better. Now, David Pawson, who some of you will have heard of, um, in the 1990s, he recalled, um, he recalled visiting Parliament during the 60s. And uh, I'm going to quote him here so you can see when began to change in this country. I remember talking about this in Parliament. There was a day in the 1960s when I went to visit the members of Parliament prayer meeting in the House of Commons. 70 of them from all parties. That was enough sold. But in the next election, in the mid-60s, many of them lost their seats. And now there are only two groups of nine who meet and pray together. 18 active, active Christian MPs in 650. It's not 5%. It wasn't 5% in the mid-60s. 
And it's interesting that as soon as that 5% disappeared in the 1966 general election, David Speer introduced the Abortion Act, which was passed with royal assent in 1967. Since then, since then, over 10 million babies have been terminated in this country. When the salt got below the amount that was needed to disinfect and fertilise the House of Commons, all the legislation began to come in that was contrary to God's law. You follow what's happening and what's happened. In 2015, and it's the nearest one I could find, there's, there's various Church of England surveys, but the nearest national survey I could find showed that there was just 4.7% of the population in England actually attended a church every week. So the social trends haven't improved and they're not looking like they're going to improve. The British nation is no longer a Christian nation. It's not a Christian society. But if we could get back over that 5%, we begin to see a reversal in the trends. Now, from one point of view, what I'm saying to you, it isn't, it isn't terribly encouraging, is it? But I think there's a real reason for optimism. I think there's a real, genuine reason for optimism. That's precisely why being salt and light and being an evangelist, being prepared to offer that invitation to meet with Jesus is more important now than it's ever been. When there's less than 5% in society, we may come across active opposition to preaching the gospel in public places. But the kingdom doesn't operate just in public places, does it? The kingdom is grown one to one. And you know what's going to happen as all of these social policies come into place? Society itself will start to deteriorate and we'll find that there are people who are longing, like in the Beatitudes, for the righteousness of the Lord. And they are looking for people who live in that manner. And there will be opportunities. There will be more opportunities. It's a fact that throughout history, in every society that we've seen throughout history, think of China, think of, uh, think of the, some of the African countries, think of Russia and the communist countries, where the church is persecuted, where it can't speak publicly, the growth in the kingdom has been the most explosive. So we don't need to fear that. We need to be excited by it. We need to be excited by it. So it doesn't stop us giving out the invitation and building the kingdom one by one. The second aspect then is not just about the quantity, it's about the distribution. Where is it? Salt's no use in the box. It's got to be out there in direct contact with the, earth, the dirt before it operates. In other words, it operates by presence. Um, so... I mean, Simon's already introduced the things that are going on in this chapel and outside this chapel. All we need to know is that if this is the only place we meet and we talk about God and we discuss our love of Jesus, then we're never going to reach the 1,366 souls, according to the last sentence, sentence, in and around Bolney. This is our mission field. 
So we need to be out there. If you're in a job where you're the only Christian, take heart, pray for more Christians to come and join you to get to the 5%. Then you really see things change. Things change like that. They change in prisons, they change in hospitals, they change in schools. And my word, our schools are absolutely under assault at the moment. We've got to be there. We need to pray. We need to increase the numbers in order that we can influence what's happening in society. I won't say any more on that. We need to be there. I want to say one small bit, the third aspect of soul, because it's perhaps the most important aspect that we have to face up to, and that's its quality. You see, salt is needed in a certain amount in any given situation. It needs to be in direct contact with the situation that it's going to influence. But my goodness, it's got to be salty. It's got to be salty. And Jesus, it must be true because Jesus says it. He talked about salt losing its saltiness. And what does he mean? Sodium chloride doesn't change into anything else. It doesn't lose its salt quality. It's a physical impossibility. But Jesus said it happened, so it must do. He says if the salt's lost its saltiness, it's no good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. So how can the salt lose its saltiness? Well, in a very simple way, in a very worldly way and deceptive way, not by ceasing to be sodium chloride or potassium chloride or whatever, but by being adulterated with other substances. And a clever salt dealer would scrape up plenty of sand with the salt from the Dead Sea shores and so a lot of it was barely salt at all, and it can get thrown out. That's the only way which salt can lose its saltiness, by having too much other stuff mixed in with it. And now the lesson of that to us should be obvious. Christians are only going to influence the world if we are totally different from it. Somebody said of the church that uh, the lifeboat should be in the sea. But when the sea gets in the lifeboat, we're in trouble. Much of the church is aligning itself with political and social justice causes on the basis that we've got to be credible to our contemporary generation. We don't have to be credible. The result is that uh, our real situation in the UK and in other Western nations, it's not just that we don't have enough salt, but the salt that we have is losing its saltiness. And it's doing that by taking on too much of what's important to secular society. And it's humanist society, it's TV, media, social media. Um, they, call the, they call the devil the prince of the wave, uh, the prince of the air. He's prince of the airwaves, controlling everything you see and hear. But be aware of that. When everybody's flying a different flag every week as a sign of support for some cause or other, we must be willing to point to the cross. Because the offence of the cross is that it deals with the root problem, which is personal sin. And it defies all the notions of us being able to earn our way to a new nirvana. That simply doesn't work. There's only one way, the way, the truth, and the life. And to a certain extent, that kind of brings us back to where we started. We must get right with God. 
through what Christ has done for us on the cross. Then we represent him to this world to bring about the kingdom that he's prepared for us. I think I won't go on much further. I'll just summarise. We're not called to be credible. We're called to be different. Salt and light begins not what we do or what we say, but what we are. Salt and light only operate when we're in direct physical contact with a world that is in darkness and dirt. We need a certain amount of it to change society. And in this country, at least, we're low in quantity. So we must keep sharing the gospel. In a post-Christian society, the societal trends are going rapidly downwards. But this is going to mean more opportunities, not less, to share the gospel. And we need, above all, a quality of soul and a quality of light, just like the gospel that they represent, that are totally and unashamedly different from the society into which God has placed us. Paul reminds us of this in Romans 1, 16-17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are you who are persecuted because of righteousness. You're the salt of the earth. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. I mentioned eight billion souls and possibly more now, 1,366 unique souls in Volney Ward. That's our vineyard. That's where we labour. Salt and light, and I know, and Simon's talked about it this morning, we go out each week to be salt and light in this village. And the opportunities will come to bear the good news of Jesus, to carry the personal invitation, and actually tell them the gospel. Invite them to the wedding feast in the New Eden. We know, each of us in here knows that it's been prepared for us. We've got our invitation. It's been prepared for them too. If only they knew it. If only they knew it. If only they could see it. Let's make it our mission that they see it in us.